Welcome to another episode of the More Than A Game podcast, a podcast all about life and leadership through the lens of Australian basketball. And with me on the podcast today is former NBL champion Oscar Foreman. Oscar spent 17 seasons playing in the NBL and played a grand total of 513 NBL games, which is the 11th most, most games in NBL history. He had an incredible three-point shot, an incredible three-point shooter. He hit 904 three-pointers in his career, which ranks as the 13th most in NBL history. Just a remarkable achievement. He won the NBL championship in his rookie year with the Adelaide 36ers. He spent time with the New Zealand Breakers and finished his career with the Illawarra Hawks. He's played for his country. He played for the Boomers on a number of occasions. Since retiring from the sport, he's a commentator with the NBL. He's a corporate speaker, now working for the University of Wollongong as their global sports program coordinator. He's had a great career up until this point, and we look forward to hearing more of his story today on the More Than A Game podcast. Oscar Foreman, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast. Happy to be here. It's great to see you, mate, and looking, uh, looking sharp, still looking fit. For a retired basketballer, so how's things since retiring? Oh, pretty good, you know, still run around on Thursday at lunchtime with a couple of the boys here at university. I mean, no one's yeah. playing at any elite levels, but it's it's a bit of fun and it keeps everyone in some sort of shape. Yeah, that's good to hear. Uh, you still look like you can be playing, so still hitting them as good as ever, I imagine. Yeah, look, you know, it's it's funny when you, when you start playing just in a, um, a casual, not even a competition, it's just whenever someone books a court here at lunchtime on a Thursday and we, we jump down. Mm. No pressure. You start hitting a few shots and, you know, you kind of do wonder, you know, could I, could I still play a little bit? But yeah. you know what? After um, 17 years of not having weekends off, yeah. it's weekends are amazing. I now <laughs> understand what everyone, what everyone uh, goes on about with how good weekends are. I can imagine. I've always sort of thought about even because the season is in summer, like you guys don't even get a chance to go away over that summer period, I imagine, because you're travelling so much and that in itself must be good to be able to have summer holidays and yeah, enjoy the best that Australian summer has to offer. Well, I guess I was a little bit different to a lot of other players who would live and breathe it. I would put obviously my time into uh, basketball, but I'd make sure that at the um, in, the, in the first few, in the first half of my career, I guess I was playing back to back. So I was playing the off season as well, and then I was playing when I moved to New Zealand. I was playing the off season there, but as soon as I had a one of my ankle surgeries and I was forced to miss the off season, it was great. It was great not playing. And then the next year, I did my other ankle and I had that time off, and it was really just great for your mind, not only your body but your mind. Mm. And then after that, I just started taking the off seasons off and just travelling. So I basically throughout the year, look forward to my off-season. I'd plan it to when I had to be back, when the coach said, all right, you have to be back on this date, mm. and, I, and I'd travel up. I'd basically fly in you know, a few days before that, and I'd just go to America or Europe and go hiking and get away and see how long I could stretch my budget for and <laughs> take two, two, two to three months off. Usually I'd travel the first half by myself and then, you know, friend or meet up with people and then travel the second half with them. And, yeah, I'd always stay active so it wasn't getting back to – Shape wasn't an issue, but yeah, I'd, I'd make sure I'd travel, so I'd kind of get, I'd just chase endless summers, really. Mm, that's awesome. Well, we'll go into these 17 seasons in the NBL. Um, I guess you, you grew up in Adelaide and ended up playing for your hometown club. 
And uh, you play with some great names in that in those years with the Adelaide 36ers, uh, Brett Maher, Willie Farley, Jacob Holmes, just to name a few. Um, but we'll come to that in just a moment. But I'm interested, I've, I always ask my guests this question, where did it start for you? Where did that passion for basketball uh, come from? And um, yeah, what, how, did you, how did you start playing the game of basketball? Uh, from my family, from my parents. Mum and dad played socially um, and they enjoyed it. Used to play one-on-one with my brother, you know. Um, my sister liked basketball. But then no one to really any, you know, elite level or anything like that. Uh, I remember dad used to be the coach in primary school. He was very fair, even if I would score a lot. Still, everyone, either the high high numbers, you know, would start or the low numbers. So if you know whatever your jersey number was, that's whether you started or number. It was very fair. Rotational, everyone got the exact same amount of minutes. Um, and then I was then playing with Sturt Sabres, you know, as a junior. Played, you know, every second year with Jacob Holmes because he was a year younger than me. Right. Um, he was definitely a talent as a junior. And then later, you know, um, Joe Ingalls came through the same club a couple of years later than us. So it was, you know, a strong club with good coaches. Jason Williams was one of the pros on my team at Adelaide and he was coaching me as a junior and even at my high school. So it, it kind of started there and um, I played because I loved it. That's, mm-hmm. that's one thing. And, and I always said on, you know, when, when I turned pro, um, I always said I'll play until I, you know, two things happen. One, I stop getting paid and, you know, to play. And, and the other way is if I stop loving it. And they happened about the same same year for me, which was lucky. Um, so I didn't really make any difficult decisions on retirement. Mm. Well, it's incredible, mate. And it's so good to see that backstory and that passion that, uh, I guess, drives you um, throughout those years in the NBL. But going back to your first season, you actually won the comp in your first season and, you hear that so often, um, I guess, with rookies that have won it and they think it's so easy, but it takes, you know, sometimes I don't get to a grand final again. But um, again, you play with some great players in those early years with the Adelaide 36ers. We're coached by the legendary Phil Smythe. What was it like in those early years? And what did you learn being in that program at the Adelaide 36ers back then? You know, it's funny. I kind of almost um, had my coaches around backwards the, the way I went through like Gordy McLeod was a very you know at Illawarra was a very regimented coach and he was um, very skills based coach and he would have been someone that would have been great for me early on like he was a great coach for me as it was but he would have been great early on yeah. Phil was a coach you would, I would have loved to have again um, in my last couple of years because he was just an absolute players coach and yeah. you know roll the balls out trainings were fun but it also made my first few years um really enjoyable because it was all about let's just trainings are you know warm up roll the ball out play five and five just different scenarios different games him and steve breeny and scott minnis you know great basketball minds Mm. um yeah but they they definitely did make it fun um it also gave me an unrealistic expectation of oh this is easy you know because we did have such a good core and such a good uh, nucleus of a team Mm. that it was very player driven as well like you you had your workhorses like like Mark Nash and Rupert Sapwell and Paul Rees and David Stiff, those kind of guys that really did push every ounce and um, they kind of, you know, had a lot of voices, you know. Then you had your stars of Willie Farley, as you said, and Brett Maher. They kind of were the scorers, but I think it was that nucleus that really pushed and did all the engine room work to um, win games as well. So it was a little bit unrealistic because, you know, rock up, you win your first season, you think, oh, this is easy, like you said. Mm. Um 
and then you find out later how hard it is to get back. But also what it did was show me that I, I see each year in the NBL, you kind of look at the teams and culture matters. It's not about buying players. That first year, you know, a lot of those guys weren't on big money. Um, they were the ones that, you know, they were the workhorses and, and they made sure they got everything um, everything across the line. And, and even when I went to uh, Wollongong, we had a lot of starters on very, very low money, but um, what we did was we built a we built a core that um, worked hard, played for each other, and were quite disciplined. Um, and then you know we looked at you know the neighbours up the road of the Kings, and they were more about trying to buy the buy the places and buy the people rather than um, develop them and, and build that a uh, core that would stick around for a long time. It was more kind of team, players came in and out and jumped around rather than. You know, I think we had at Illawarra, we had, you know, I played eight years there. Larry Davidson played 10 years. Reese Martin played 10 years. Conrad's he's back playing again now, so he's probably on 11 or 12 or whatever it is. You know, Dave Gruber played a bunch. Demos, Jackson, you know, you had a bunch of guys that played for quite a long, quite a long time. Mm. And that, you know, meant that we would, each year would pull in new imports. And we just had our, you know, had our um, engine room that just kept ticking over. And we made sure that we would get roundabout you know, where it was each year mm. and then um, really developed on depending on who our imports were to whether we could push further or not. Absolutely. You mentioned the development of players there. And I guess when you look at the NBL now, um, it doesn't seem to be that many players that have come through. And like yourself, growing up in Adelaide and then playing for the Adelaide 36ers, um, I guess you're in that development space now with players. And how do you think the NBL goes about developing its players? Is there a... I know for New South Wales, obviously got the NBL one now coming through and and that, but um, are the development pathways sufficient in this country at the moment? Do you think? Well, I think the um, the fact that the world's got smaller and just global now is uh, is a huge thing. You know, if you look at the NBA and you look at who used to be in the NBA, you had you know back in the day it was just it was just Americans and then it kind of went to then the Europeans came through when Dirk made noise and then you know LeBron year when Darko Milicic goes you know number two so the European you know invasion kind of happened then mm. um, then it kind of went to the Chinese when Yao came through and they looked at you know Sun Yuei and Yi Ji Lian um, even Mingi Patir from Mongolia he came on um, so they kind of had that Asian wave through there and whether that was a marketing thing as well, I was going, hey, you know, above the river, you know, some of the Chinese are quite tall and um, there was a lot of uh, development going through China at that time and then off the tail of that, then Gorge and Bill Tomlinson, those guys go over and coach in China for a number of years too. Mm. Then it kind of went to um, the Australians. So you went to, they realised that, you know, you had a bunch of the Australians that were early and probably, you know, um, Paddy Mills, um, Delhi, when those guys went over and they started getting noticed as they're good teammates, they're no trouble, they're hard workers, mm. they, you know, they'll play hard and um, so that there is nothing that tracks them from the team. They just bring positives only. So I feel that the Australia, the NBA kind of started looking at Australians, which is why a lot of those other guys got to look at and why we have so many Australians. And at the same time, it was about, you know, 18 to 20 years after um, the NBL boomed over here. So you have, mm. you know, you know, the 18th birthdays of Ben Simmons and Dante Exum and those kind of guys that then, you know, got our Australians from our imports that came over. 
So that really goes to that boom. And the next boom they're looking at the moment is, you know, the Sudanese community that's, you know, refugees that come over and especially in, in, in South Australia. And then you've got um, ex-players like, you know, Rashad Tucker working on academies and KB and those dudes. And that kind of really now bring in um, the body types with the, the professional coaching. And then um, we are seeing a lot of, um, you know, the Sudanese community actually, you know, quite, a, quite developing quite quickly. And even if you look at the Hawks team and you look at, you know, the NBL, there are a couple of um, Sudanese on each roster that are, you know, just showing their length and playing quite well now. Mm. Um, so I, I think when it comes back to the pathways, because the world's got smaller and more accessible, in my day it was go to the AIS, try and make it, you know, try and play two years and then go to try and go to Europe and have a good career in Europe if you can or the NBL or if you're that 1%, maybe get a look at the NBA. Mm. Now the mentality seems to be go to, go to college and from college you might get recruited to them, you might get in the draft. Well, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot happening with the draft and different names and you see how many Australian names get into the draft each year and or even the D League or the G League, sorry, is now now an option as well with two-way contracts and, you know, guys like Jock Landau being very close to it and uh, Will Magnet going across and coming back or hmm. there's been a bunch of, um, you know, he's an Isaac Humphreys going across there. So it does seem smaller, so that seems like a very viable pathway for that top tier. Um, you know that wasn't like that 20 years ago, and I think that has that has developed. In terms of pathways here, um, I'm not as in touch with all that sort of stuff. I, you know, I do see, um, I do see the you know developed players on on rosters and um, see how they are changing over time. Um, but also, to be honest, I feel that a lot of people don't. Uh, they uh, underestimate the hard work that goes into becoming a professional, really. Mm. So what is some of that hard work then? Um, you know, I've heard stories of some of the, I guess, habits that players have formed as they've tried to make it. But from your point of view, um, if there's any young players listening, what does it take to become a professional basketballer in this country? You know what? I think if someone told people up front, what they, here's the blueprint of what you have to do, if you want to make it, if you want, not even start, if you're not to guarantee to make it, to have a shot at making it, mm. I think most people would say that looks too hard as it is. It's, it's, it is difficult. It is building habits. Mm. Forming habits is one of the first things. Um, and I don't think the amount of work that goes into honing your skill and your craft mm. is, is tremendous. I know, you know, back at the AIS, I used to shoot 500 shots a day. Wow. Um, I know people that would, you know, it's not just and to try and stay committed during those say 500 to a thousand shots it's not just shooting them anyone can shoot 500 shots it's shooting good quality of the same form mm. you know to myself even when i shoot now i'll have you know i have people say oh your shot looks exactly the same every time to me when i shoot it feels different every time mm. but the fact that it looks the same to them is the fact that i've shot all those shots with exactly the same form and i've made sure i was strict on it you know it's, it's, it's sacrifices that people make and a lot of people don't want to make the right sacrifices. I mean, there, there's been countless people over my career. Like I remember Albert Schweitzer tournament over in Germany and there was a, um, 
there was a kid from Germany and I remember seeing him at the time thinking, this guy is the best player I've ever seen. He is, he has to go to the NBA for sure. He is that unbelievable. Never seen him again in my life. Wow. Never heard about him. Never. And I do have I zero idea whatever happened to him. If I, he, I just know he didn't go pro in the NBA. Hmm. What, I, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea if he just wasn't committed, if life happened to him or what he got swallowed up by. But there are just, it's very difficult to make it and it's very difficult even within yourself to stay committed and it is the sacrifices of, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to put time and effort into it? It's not purely just I'm going to shoot a thousand shots. Mm. Is your technique is making, do you actually, um, can you listen to coaches? Can you find and seek out help of people that are better and smarter than you in certain areas? And if you do want to be a shooter, you go find a shooter, you go find a coach that is better than you that you then you know, can take advice. Secondly, can you listen and actually do it? It's mm. one thing to do it when a coach is watching. It's a whole other thing to do it when no one's watching because it's not that fun to putting all the work in when zero people are watching you mm. and it may not turn out to be good. But I tell you, at the end of the game, when people shoot shots that matter in front of a crowd, they've done that shot numerous times when no one's seen them at all. Mm. It's not the first time they shoot the shot. And I don't think people really get the grasp of that, that going, okay, here's so-and-so that shot a game winner and go, oh, that was lucky it went in. I think Elon Musk actually got that question mm. recently and someone said, oh, you know, you're lucky you're so smart. And he said, oh, I work, or your company's so good. And he, I work 16 hours a day, mm. six hours, six days a week. That's not luck. That's mm. disc- and any time someone says, oh, you're lucky you can shoot so well, I get a bit insulted because it's not luck. The discrediting all the hard work I did to get to the point where I was mm. with my shot. Yeah. Well, mate, it's so cool. And I guess you made a name for yourself with that three-point shot and you know, growing up watching the sport as a young guy too, like you were one of the guys that you know, could shoot it and made a career out of it. And I guess um, just going back to those early years and you started in 2002 around that time, uh, finished only a couple of years ago, but... In that time, you would have seen a lot of, um, I guess, the NBL evolve over that time. And I guess you started right at the time where it started to go downhill a little bit. Um, it rode that way for the 90s. Uh, for some reason, after the 2000 Olympics, the NBL in this country sort of stagnated. And, yeah, it just um, wasn't as popular as it once was. But in the last few years uh, in the NBL, you saw it obviously take off again. And those crowds uh, came back. And the, I guess the investment, the sponsorship dollars came back into the sport. Um, what do you put that down to in that time? Was it just a matter of um, having good owners in place? Or, I mean, you know, that NBL chopped and changed with teams. So many teams came and went. Um, what do you put the success of the NBL down to now as opposed to when you first came into the league? You know what? I always actually uh, ask myself that. I, I Looking back, I knew I came in just at the end of the wave and, you know, my, my career started at the downturn of the NBL and finished as the up 10 pretty much. I was in that, uh, if you look at the longitudinal wave of it, I was in the wrong time. Um, but, yeah, you know, a lot of it flows on from the NBA, you know, the success, success on the NBA and then, you know, the interest of that obviously with, you know, the Aussie guys we have in the NBA and the marketability there then that flows on a little bit to the players we get in here. Um I do think there were a few issues financially with different owners that would have caused some trouble over the over the years and yeah. teams as you said, teams chopping and changing. You know, I think I played in a season uh well I did play in a season where there were thirteen teams and it was the top eight made the finals and then I played in seasons where the top four made the finals out of only eight teams. So, right. you know, I 
played in seasons where it's, you know, there's a, a one-game um, knockout in the playoffs. Um, and it's each year having teams in and out, you know, the governors had to work out what to do. Obviously now with Larry, with control of the NBL, he's put a tremendous amount of money in there and, mm. you know, built it well and is still building it. So it's, you know, I think it's great to see some sort of success from, you know, from his efforts because without someone like him, uh, it would have struggled. And it, it is frustrating when you hear a lot of people banging on about how the, um, you know, he owns these teams and owns this and it's an unfair league. It's, look, it's, yeah, nothing's going to be completely fair and there are different amounts of money involved in things. And like in any, you look at the NBA. Hmm. LeBron goes to the Lakers. He didn't go to Memphis. Hmm. He doesn't want to live in Memphis. <laughs> Simple as that. Like it's, it's, you know, some good players are going to go to Melbourne because, yeah. yeah, the dollars might be in Melbourne, but also they might not want to live in Townsville or, you know, Singapore or any of these other places that had existed. Yeah. But you, you've got a bit of that. So that's the landscape. And yeah, we lived in Wollongong, which was, you know, close to Sydney. We didn't live in Sydney, but we lived there because, yeah, instead of getting stuck in traffic, we wanted to go swim at the beach. So mm-hmm. there are positives to everything. And then when it is game time, you know, you're a small market team. So you do take a bit of that. So it's, look, it's, I think Larry, he does get credit for what he's done, but I think he, you know, he can have more credit for what he's done with the league. He's done a fantastic job. Mm. Um, and now there's a bit more governance and strictness about who can own, it seems. Um, so hopefully it doesn't dive and hopefully it stays you know, at a strong level. Mm. Um, and, then, and then we're seeing a lot of you know, interest from um, you know, NBA players having potential, you know, part ownerships of clubs and that kind of interest. I think that can only be a good thing. And then when we do have, you know, kind of like, um, Lamelo Ball come down, and then you see the fanfare from that, um, th- those things. And then these, um, you know, Giddy going to going to the draft and getting recognised. Um, yeah, those kind of things I think will will really help for this league. I, I believe. Yeah, that's great, and I think. The league has to be careful not to um, lose momentum, I guess. Uh, in similar ways, the A-League or Australian soccer has seen that sort of growth when the A-League kicked off, had a rough season as well, reformed as the A-League, and now we're seeing, I guess, declining crowds and it's going back down the path that it did when the NSL sort of went. So I guess we want to avoid that. Um, but again, as you said, the big part of that is making the, the teams, um, you know, Operational, functional. Uh, we don't want to see teams, you know, coming in and then going out again. I think it was a big part of the demise. And one of those teams that came in was the New Zealand Breakers, and you joined them a few years after uh, they were formed and established. Um, what were those years like? But also um, being part of such a new club, a club trying to form its own identity. Uh, what did you take away from your seasons with the New Zealand Breakers after moving on from Adelaide? Yeah, look, I it was a um Big decision for me of whether to go to New Zealand or stay in Adelaide, uh, and in in the end, I'd I thought about it for the year before, and I and I decided not to. And then the thing that actually pushed me to go there was just getting out of my comfort zone. That was my biggest thing. I needed to be out of my comfort zone to grow as a person, to be able to grow as a player. Um, I loved it over there. I really did. New Zealand's fantastic. I. I New Zealand holds a very, very special place in my heart and I, any time in, I, I meet a Kiwi now, 
like I get very excited talking about my time there <laughs> because I absolutely loved it. Like yeah. if I find out that I'm from Auckland or the North Shore or out west or wherever, you know, I, I just have so many, so many good memories. I, I um, mm. you know, the, the first year here, it was, it was, it was, it was difficult. Um, but the thing that was good with the owners, the owners, anytime you talk to anyone about the breakers from within that 10 year period, they'll always mention Paul and Liz Blackwell. They were fantastic owners. They were um, really good people. I mean, I got cut from a, you know, one year into a um, three-year contract and yet I'll I'll still, you know, for a few years after, I would fly in with Illawarra and then after team dinner, I would grab a team bus and go over to their house and just, Mm. you know, sit down and have a chat with them until it was time to go to bed. Mm. Um, they're just great people. If they came to Adelaide for a game, they'd catch up with my parents. Mm. Um, there's not many owners that I would hold in, you know, that close regard, let alone yeah. owners that fired me. <laughs> like that's just, it, that just speaks, I think, of how they are, that they recruited on. Um, they just, they were nice people. When it came to Christmas time, they would have, okay, you know, the morning until one o'clock was Orphan's Christmas. If you didn't, if you didn't, couldn't get home to see family or you didn't have family over, they opened their doors and they held a Christmas for everyone. Um, whenever you sign there, they gave a small little hamper to you for each year. Well, just, just a little stuff, just all the little things. They were, they were really hospitable, just really, really good people. Um, we still chat to this day. Uh, yeah, New Zealand, Andre Lamanis and... You know, he was Dorge at the start, and I was Vicar Mern and Judd Flavel. Um, Andre was just coming into his head first head coaching role, and so he was quite hard with what he wanted because he wanted to, you know, stamp his authority on things, but he was also a, a really fun coach. Um, it, it was kind of a work hard, and then you, you got respect from him. Um, I really enjoyed it, uh, and to see him develop as a coach, like the, from his first year, you know, I was there for, what, four years, my first year there to my last year there. He had changed and improved so much as a coach and he was someone that always wanted to better himself and he, his, you know, basketball knowledge was great. And then, you know, how he, over this, this first year, um, his relinquishing, he had a few issues with relinquishing control over things, whereas over the last couple, like, he would really rely on his assistant coaches and, and give them leeway, which was very good and... And I'd always make little deals with him too. Like, oh, we made it, you know, we'd make a deal that if we won five in a row, we we're allowed to go to Wet and Wild once we played at the Gold <laughs> Coast and, you know, games like that. So, yeah, nice. um, yeah, it was, or, you know, if we if we beat a, beat a team by a certain amount of points, we're allowed to have training off on Monday or yeah. whatever. So, like, you know, and things because I do feel that coaches a lot of the time will train too hard and too long. Mm. And usually if you lose a game, the next game is, okay, we've got to do more. Then you lose two, and as soon as what I find interesting in coaches' mentality is the wave of as soon as they're winning or losing, Mm. if they lose a few games, they go, okay, we've got to go harder, 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 because it's counterintuitive to lighten off and freshen bodies up. Mm. Got to correct, got to correct, got to correct, got to make sure that everyone, you know, what they know is imparted to what the player knows for on the court, because Mm. they can only they can only walk control a game so many times. Mm. Whereas it's the players that once the game starts, the players really control the game. So, mm. um, yeah, they, they they really want to go harder and harder. So what I do find with a lot of, you know, a lot of coaches is they'll go, 
first few losses, let's train more and harder and harder. And then after you've, you're on a skid of five, six games, it's like, oh, that's not working. Mm. Let's line it off now. And, um, yeah, I, I do feel that Andre, as he got, you know, got further into the head coaching role, he um, started looking at things a little bit differently because he did spend some time over the, with the Spurs and with Popovich. And um, that's what he liked. He started to kind of emulate that and he was close with Brett Brown. So, um, yeah, his coaching style kind of emulated that a little bit and was a bit different, which I liked. He enjoyed. Yeah, it's great. I think um, I was going to ask this question a bit later on, but I'll ask it now in terms of good coaching and what makes a good coach. And you mentioned about the, I guess, the intuition to either rest players or to go hard. I think when you hear of, you know, the Brian Gorgians of the world, even the Wayne Bennett's in the NRL, they know what players need. And um, you mentioned Phil Smythe being a great man manager as well. But, you know, you've had some great coaches as well, you know, successful coaches, uh, Rob Beveridge, Gordon McLeod and the like. So um, you've had a broad spectrum. Um, what does it take to be a great coach at this level? And um, is it a case where you need to, uh, I guess, embrace this great man management style or do coaches just need to embrace what they're good at? So, yeah, what is it that makes a good coach, uh, I guess, at the NBL level in particular? Well, I've kind of had, um, I think I've had a who's who of coaches, really. Like yeah, in I reckon. <laughs> in terms of head coaches, I've, been, I've had Phil Smythe, Gordy McLeod, Rob Beveridge, um, Gorgian, Brett Brown, um, Gordy McLeod. Mm. Pretty much had like a selection of, you know, the best coaches from Australia. Mm. Um, yeah. And doesn't matter which one is, I've always, always asked the question, I'm like, are head coaches born crazy or do they become crazy? Because I tell you what, all of them are absolutely batshit crazy. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know which comes first, but what yeah. does it take? Look, it takes, it takes a lot, a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of the side uh, behind the scenes effort. Um, like becoming a player, like people think, oh, to be a coach, you just need to sit up there and sub. Mm. Stopping in is, is probably the least of the, the worries. Like mm. putting, I think a great coach is one that doesn't need to be seen to doing anything. Mm. I mean, Andre, I say a lot about Andre, but Andre was, um, you know, I asked him one time and I, I said, I talked about coaching. He goes, the most important part of coaching is, he goes, coaching is 90% recruiting. Mm. Because if I recruit the horses, you can run. Yeah, yeah. Because if I recruit the right people, you will do what I say. Mm. And when it comes to the game, and then you'll also get your own spin and understand what happens. Mm. Like look who you re- look who you recruit in those times, like mm. you know Dylan Boucher or Paul Hanari or yeah. you know CJ Bruton. Those guys on the fly would work it all out. Mm. Kirk Penny, Kirk would turn up and he would just do what Kirk wanted to do. Mm. But he didn't do it in a bad way. He was always a positive. Way and he's like, okay, we're going to go hard at this time. We're going to cruise at this time. That's what Kirk wanted. Mm. And everyone understood Kirk was a star mm. and he got results. Mm. So, yeah. So, this is how Kirk's thinking was. You know, CJ's like, we're going to have fun at this time. We're going to work hard at this time. And he always made, they all brought different stuff to it. Yeah. Look at, you know, Glenn Savile. Mm. Geez, at 37 years old or whatever he was, he was the first one in there, the last one to leave. He was the hardest one. Mm. Like even in a boring drill, he would not be missing a step. Mm. He had utmost respect for his coaches. Mm. He would always 
it's very hard in a long season, you know, to, and gruelings, grueling trainings and pre-season, you know, the boys will always go for coffee or lunch after and, you know, it's only a matter of time until someone will talk about, ah, rag on the coach for a little bit because that's, yeah. that's part of it because you yeah. get through it. Mm. I cannot tell you one time and Savile actually have said anything negative about a coach. Yeah, it's great. And, I mean, if someone did try and involve him, mm. it was like, yeah, no, well, they've got their reasons. Mm. And his conversation would be about something different. Mm. Just absolute pro, like, you know, he mm. never ended... He played for played for tough coaches, and he, you know, Gorge was, geez, Gorgeous was Gorgeous the toughest, mm. very very tough, and and but you know he he did it. And one of the things that got me through my first Boomers camp when I knew Gorge was going to be absolutely on me nonstop was that someone said if Gorge yells at you and if he's on you, he likes you, but he thinks you've got potential, mm. and it's true. I've never seen a coach just come yell at someone just because they're having a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's a byproduct, but yeah. they, you know they don't just. If you can't, no one, no, no. I've seen a coach yell at Dylan Boucher for you know not being able to shoot three pointers. Mm. Shoot three pointers, so they don't yell at him for it. Mm. They yell at him for not playing defense because they know he can play defense very well. Yeah. So the coaches are actually trying to get you know the better of you, um, mm. something better out of you. Sorry. Yeah. So. Yeah, look, what what becomes, you know, a lot, I think there's a lot of behind the scenes watching film, watching tapes, just talking to other and watching other because no one creates offences. Everything's stolen. Yeah. Created the shuffle, you know, and they just steal it from someone else. It's just what works for that playing group. So, mm. you know, they do watch a lot of European games, a lot of NBA games to work out what, you know, there's a triangle. Is the triangle still going to work in this era? Is the triangle going to work with the personnel we have? Yeah. Fitting those things in into um, their, their system, really. No, that's great insight, mate. And I find it is an art, and I guess you are, I guess you're either they crazy or what, because it takes a lot to be a head coach, I imagine. But um, I guess going back to you mentioned, you know, playing under Gorge, making the Boomers uh, squad and representing your country, which is no no doubt a huge achievement in itself. And I guess those New Zealand years, did you win a competition in the end? Were you part of that? Three peat the breakers or did you come no 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 I left the year before right um, I would have loved one more one more year with them there was I think some personnel changes and you know training went from quite the squad went from quite tense about you know making sure they didn't stuff up rather than looking at the positive side of things and they all you know when I chatted to the guys after there's other years they're like man it's just so lighthearted and that's I would have really liked to have been involved in something like that. Mm. Unfortunately, I wasn't, but then over in Wollongong, it was, you know, we had a bit of that mix as well. Mm, for sure. Because um, the reason I asked the question, you had, as you said, you enjoyed your time there. You played in the New Zealand NBL uh, while you were over there, became um, or named in the New Zealand NBL All-Star 5. And I guess my question is, um, being part of that league and playing in the Australian NBL, um, we see the Australian NBL is probably a lot better than the New Zealand NBL, but what are the difference between the two leagues just um, to finish up in, that, in your time in New Zealand there? Yeah, look, I, I, yeah, obviously the Australian, Australian NBL is, you know, a lot better than New Zealand NBL. Um, but the New Zealand NBL, the comparison is to NBL1 over here. Um, and, and it would be interesting, you know, the best of each. I think the some of the top... New Zealand NBL teams would be the top NBL one teams just because, you know, they do have 
they tend to have a lot of the good New Zealand players and then they'll have some um, imports in that are, you know, sometimes quite good and then a couple of the Australian imports, Australian players, goers players imports. So, mm. look, yeah. that league's fun. I, I really loved it. Um, you know, they have good they have good coaches now. It's uh, starting to get better and better coaches. But what it's like, so you've got Bevo at Southland. You know, I had mm. John Dorge at Harbour Heat. Judd Flavel was coaching in Southland, I think, before that. Dylan Boucher, I believe, probably, you know, GM player, coach, um, absolutely everything over there, probably a water boy as well at this <laughs> stage. Um, but, yeah, like those like those, those games are fun because you fly into a different town or you, you travel to a different um, city in New Zealand. Then, you you know, you play, you'll go out, you have, you know, see, you see the sights and then, you, you know, you fly back the next day. Um, good crowds, good good games and pretty intense. Mm. So I do, like I find memories of it because I think it was it was a, a good stage of my career. I also went back over there at the end of my career when I just just about to retire. I'd hurt my knee. Um, I needed I needed surgery and then a team over there, one of the guys I know, they're like, oh, can you come play? And I was like, oh, my knee's pretty banged up. I, I haven't been able to do anything. And they're like, we just, our import's not getting on a plane yet. They just cancelled. We need someone. Just, we've got five games in a week and a half or something or two weeks. And I was, yeah. I said, sure. <laughs> and, I just, and I just couldn't, I got over there and it was a terrible decision for me. It was fun. Really? I loved it. Still great people. I just couldn't move. I couldn't run up and down the court. I was heavily taped. I believe I, sh- I think I shot three of 26 from the three point wow. land and just could not make a thing. Could not, just couldn't move. But, yeah. Um, my early years, yeah, early years over there, absolutely loved it. Um, it's more for a younger, uh, so I think for any of the uh, young NBL players, absolutely, they should in their off season go over and play over there because it's a fantastic league for development and it's a really fun league to play in. Mm. Um, in your latter years, yeah, go on holidays, enjoy it because yeah. there's a long, long time where you're only going to get a few weeks off a year. Yeah, when you have that off season, when you can travel, now travel around Australia, see Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, early on, definitely, I think NBL players should be playing the off-season. Mm, for sure. Um, just while you're talking, a bit of an idea that floated in my head. Can you ever see the possibility, and I'm going back to soccer now with the FA Cup and you know the, the lower teams playing against the A-League teams, is there any possibility, you think, of like a Champions League type format maybe involving New Zealand NBL clubs and NBL clubs or NBL 1 clubs? Do you see that getting off the ground at all? Or I think it'd be a great concept if it... Happen. Oh, it'd be great. Um, I think at the was it around 2000 they had the McDonald's Cup where it was like the winner of each league played over the summer in, in Europe. So I remember yeah, the that's right. one, yeah. one year the Sixers went over there and there's yep. a bunch of European, like, of course, you know, the NBA team will win it, yeah, but that was quite interesting. Um, yep. and then in around about the same time, I remember the league of all the NBL, so now it'd be like NBL 1, West, East, whatever, mm. but all come off and play each other. Because remember we won, uh, we won in Adelaide for Sturt mm. and we were about to go come over and play Seawall, a bunch of the Seawall teams and bring um, out West over. Mm. And that's the year ANSET um, went down. Because we're, right. we're, we're flying ANSET, we're all about to get to the, to the uh, airport and one of our teammates... He started driving. He started driving across to, uh, to Melbourne wow. and to the airport. Announced that Ansett's just gone under. The whole thing's cancelled, and so he got. I think he got to Horsham or something and had to turn around. Gosh. Um, 
but yeah, and then the second year, uh, the second year it happened too. Sorry, so the first year, and then the second year it got cancelled because we was we had a good team the first year. We had a bunch of the young sixes on there, and the second year we were stacked. And that's when it cancelled, and we're like, that was our shot at trying to, you know, it was always a Seawall team that won it. Yeah. But um, we had a yeah, we had a stacked stacked team in the um, SA Premier League mm. back then. Yeah. No, yeah, I just think it'd be a great concept. I remember the ABA, old ABA, um, had a similar concept where you know the top teams would come together, and mighty Southern Sharks had a crack one year, and uh, my old club, but um, with BJ Carter and Co. I just think it'd be a great concept to sort of work towards some sort of. Champions League type format and you know I think as a player you want to play against the best and you know if it's not European clubs at the moment with COVID or NBA clubs just having the opportunity to play against uh, New Zealand NBL whatever the case may be I remember myself when I was playing playing against the team from the US and Canada and it's just a great experience all around so if something like that would be pretty epic I believe but um, oh for sure um, just going into the um or you transitioned into the Allure Hawks where you spent the uh, later stages of your career and no doubt a great experience playing such a, a prestigious club. I guess one of the only foundation clubs uh, left in the in the league. Um, what was that experience like and, and playing under Gordy McLeod, as you said, Rob Beveridge, and then uh, finishing your career there? Um, no doubt fond memories playing for the Illawarra Hawks. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, rocked up and I remember I was from New Zealand. I said, okay, so who's our uh, footwear sponsor? They're like, oh, East Bay. And I was like, oh, that's cool. They sponsor us. He goes, no, no, no. Just you go buy shoes from East Bay. <laughs> um, I was like, right. So it was really like kind of the poor team of the uh, league. Yeah. It was, it was um, absolutely, it was just like same as what Wollongong and the other Warriors. It was just mm. a blue class team. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, working class. We don't, we don't get paid good, you know, don't get paid well. Um, but we work hard. We stay together. And, and that's all. It was always that. Mm. And, you know, every time we had to, you know, that's why going up against, say, Sydney was probably the better games because, you know, you play Kansas and it's like, okay, you guys understand what we've got to go through to survive on each year. You're not sure if you're going to stay in the league or your team's going to fold. Mm. Um, there's no point in saying, you know, five-year deals there because the team might not live for five years. Mm. Um, but you, you do play up against Sydney and, you know, the people that would come to Sydney to watch games generally weren't, there's diehard supporters and, you know, so so you could silence the crowd pretty easily, hit a few shots and, you know, the whole crowd takes the crowd out of it and then you knew you had the game. So mm. playing up against those bigger teams was really fun. Mm. Um, look, the team, teams went through obviously multiple name changes and owners and everything and, you know, then it went from, okay, we don't get paid much money here but we do... We always get paid on time and we work our, you know, work our butts off. And then it went from the, okay, we don't know if we even get paid. Um, there were, you know, the end of some seasons where our contracts just got cut and we were, um, you know, three months without any, without any income. And um, that they were pretty, pretty trying times. And then, the, you know, is the team going to exist? And then, you know, all, every all contracts got ripped up. And, I, you know, I know people were just having babies and all sorts of stuff. I remember I had... I was a captain one year and I remember calling calling all the team. I said, all right, quick, everyone's got to come to my house. We've got a meeting. And one of the guys saying, oh, it's my wife's birthday. I've just bought her this and I'm just to this. And I was like, you might want to return that. Don't know if you can afford it, mate. Like, wow. just, you know, news has come through that I'm just talking with the NBL now and the club's gone under and the owners, because the owners, we just gone to a private ownership and, mm. so, you know, 
they're excited about that and and then it went to yep got an owner that's got some money and then it's went to okay the owner doesn't want to put some money into the decided that the players don't deserve any money so look you're on you know and then we had to decide whether we're going to you know other seasons where was you know we weren't paychecks weren't coming through and we we're trying to work out whether to play our final game against Sydney to try and make it into the it was us or Sydney to go into the playoffs and um, had half the team saying no we're not playing unless we get money and half the team saying yep we play anyway and how do we do this and so going you know there was I remember half time would come back into the each at half time the game would go back in the change room and everyone was like wait checking their bank accounts is, is, is are we getting paid are we not what's happening is, is are we over is because there was talk that if we made the playoffs we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to travel anywhere anyway yeah. um, you know the board members at the time we had um, Pete Bowman and, and Bill Dowson and Tanya Brown and you know, and they were working endlessly behind the scenes to make sure that something could be done, that, you know, money could come from somewhere that we could actually, if because it was bittersweet, but we had a meeting the day of the game of we're trying to work out with the NBL whether we can play. And, you know, we weren't sure until game time, even at game time, we weren't sure if we, if we won the game, we'd go to the playoffs. We didn't know if we could actually play in the playoffs because we didn't know if we could fly to wherever we were. So, or have a hotel or whatever we were doing. So, look, there were there were times that I'm sure you know people would have no idea that existed, or you know the mm. crowd had no idea about it. But um, you know, I know we came out and we absolutely smacked Sydney at home one game, and <laughs> I think that was just straight. <laughs> you know, we're in the warm up, and one of the one of the players said to me, "Is like, is that one of the owners? Is that someone? Do we do we go ask him? Where you know, are we going to play the playoffs? Or what's going on?" And yeah, it was just talk about distractions that was you know that was um you know yeah there was there were some um, interesting interesting times and interesting games but yeah look, you know the teams somehow survived in one form or one name or another and um it actually is good to be going back to games and mm. even commentating at them so i got involved somehow to mm. be go to games and and see them survive and um yeah hopefully under this new model and uh, you know under god it can um, keep progressing and getting better and stronger. Mm, absolutely. And I guess over the years, as you said, it's been so tumultuous in terms of ownership structures and I guess long-term, it's not a great model um, if it's going to survive. So hopefully the ownership can get it right this time. But what, I guess, does it, in your opinion, what is it going to take to get the Hawks up to that next level? You know, you're seeing some of these clubs really take it to the next level in terms of um, attendance and um, sponsorship. It just seems like the Hawks really struggle to, I guess, you go, well, we, were, we were there the other night chatting and obviously the crowd are, and the, the supporters are passionate. Um, it just seems that every year... A number of them. Yeah. What, what is it in your opinion? Um, I, I think... I think the good thing with this new ownership this year is they haven't come in and said, I'm taking the team to Bendigo or wherever. Mm. They've come in and said, we are keeping the team here mm. until it's, you know, for the next year or two at least, and the community gets to decide. Mm. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of people up in arms about, ah, oh, you, you know, you're going to take the team. Yeah. Well, if after two years people don't come out and visit and go to the games and support, mm. then you can't be upset if the team is gone. Mm. In my opinion, if you come out and support, the owners won't take the team anywhere. They'd be stupid to, and they don't want to. From my understanding, the team is in Wollongong, and the team is going to stay here. 
But if it's not viable, you can't keep being a, a team that's on its knees every time. So if people do support it, it'll stay. So I, I think part of the worry is when you do have, you know, Tuesday night or Thursday night game and, you know, even some of the Saturday or Sunday night games, stadium's pretty empty. Yeah. Like I understand with COVID and everything going on and, you know, it's hard to see the schedule ahead of time because of there are always changes, you know, with, with COVID happening. Hmm. But the state that people do, if they actually do want the team to stay, they need a, they need a supporter. Yeah. Um, and secondly, it's going to be really interesting to see what the the ownership group does for next year because this year they kind of came a little bit in late in the piece and they had to they didn't poach any players from other teams. They they had you know Digadell was uh, was a marquee that didn't work out, but he was a, a marquee player that was still available on the market. Yeah. Um, Cam Besto, he was he was available. He was floating around. Um, AJ, they you know they. They got us an injury replacement after everything had started, basically. Mm. So the team they put together was, you know, a couple of imports and and then whoever they had around, they didn't poach anyone from any other clubs. They didn't get any of the other, you know, um, youngsters coming back from anywhere because they weren't early enough in the piece. So I think this first off-season, and, and the next thing is this off-season is going to be very short for them. Mm. This off-season is going to be short. Like, Gorgeous, yeah, the Olympics and Gorgeous is going to basically go from if they make playoffs, go from playoffs to Olympics, straight back into season, not even pre-season. True. So it's going to be a very tough, tough off-season for them. Mm. But it's also, it'll be really interesting to see what they will be able to do with the first year of actually being able to recruit you know, in a market rather than going and with saying, hey, we've got, this is our coaches, this is what we've got, rather than we actually don't know who it is. So I've got their model. Mm. So it's going to be very interesting to see and then, if they do recruit and have a, a team similar to, you know, the Melbournes or the Sydneys or South East Melbourne or whatever, then seeing what sort of support comes out, that's that's where it really comes back onto Illawarra and whether they whether they want to come out and watch because, you know, on Sunday I wouldn't call it an amazing crowd and uh, that was, you know, that's the eighth win in nine matches. Mm. So I went to the Melbourne game and the Melbourne you know, Melbourne, uh, they're playing the top team and, yeah, it was a Thursday night, I think. Yeah, it was. Playing the top team. It'd be great to see Melbourne play and that's why I went. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the, cra- the crowd was very, very low. Mm. And that was on the back of, you know, four wins in a row or, you know, something mm. like that. Yeah. So it's, it, it does come down to, one, can the ownership put model, can the ownership group put a, uh, a model on the court that, you know, is going to be competitive and what they actually want and be able to recruit in that market. Mm. And two, are people going to come and support it and watch um, what's, you know, produced on the court? Absolutely. Well, let's hope they, yeah, put it all together. I guess the thing in their favour is uh, having Coach Gorge there, uh, Brian Gorge, and he'd no doubt be able to attract some good players. And yeah, to see the, the effect Lamella Ball had, so having someone of that ilk, um, of that sort of name, even if it's like a Matthew Delavadova who comes back or something like that, it'll be a huge boost for the club and let's hope they can um, continue on the trajectory they're going. But just to finish up, a couple more questions. I guess um, in my time uh, playing the sport, I learned a lot about life, I guess, that I was able to apply to my workplace now and, and life in general. So um, having played the sport at a high level, and this is another question I'd like to ask my guests, what have you been able to apply to your life? What have you learned from the sport 
um, that you've taken into your career now with you know, University of Wollongong where you're working now and uh, commentating, corporate speaking, whatever the case may be, is there anything that sort of stands out as a, a virtue or something from um, playing the sport that you've been able to apply to life today? Yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of the important things are habits, being able to build habits and realising that they are an important thing. I mean, you hear about, you know, in the Army or the Navy, you, you make your bed and the important is that you are able to tick something off your list straight away and at worst you come back to a made bed, you know, at night. Yeah. So building habits, being able to understand um, like the habit of working out and how health, being healthy, how that kind of helps everything. Yeah. But I think for me it was networking. Um, mm. I always knew, you know, playing in the NBL wasn't going to, you know, make you rich and help you retire <laughs> or anything like that. But what I was going to do is open doors. Um, you know, you would be in a room with a lot of um, influential people yeah. um, that actually wanted to talk to you. And mm. the number of times with teammates would, you know, stand in the corner and be like, oh, we've got a promo, we don't want to do this. The time's going to tick regardless. Mm. You're there whether you like it or not. It's mm. part of the job. And you know, really showing people you're accessible and actually being able to network and be personable. I, I found something that I worked on and I would then, in my latter years of my career, I would try and work with the younger players and be like, hey, look, this is how we actually do network or this is how we can open conversations and doors. And um, I found that as well as uh, public speaking. Um, you know, there's, I think it's hilarious that my sister as an accountant paid to do a Toastmasters course to learn how to speak publicly when I was, you know, as a 19-year-old have a microphone shoved in your face and you're expected yeah. to, you know, stuff up a couple of times and then get it after that. And, yeah. and I remember even, you know, one of the years with Wollongong here, the, um, the reporters came down and all the, all the sports reporters were actually on holiday or annual leave at the same time and so they sent down um, these two little girls would come down and, you know, they're usually just behind the desk and they never did the sports. And, like, they came up and they said, Oscar, we actually don't know anything about basketball. <laughs> uh, we've got to do it. And I said, it's okay. Interview me first. Got a little milk crate. Said, stand on the milk crate. Um, <laughs> and all we're going to do, all you're going to do is take the, the snippet from us talking anyway. They're not going to take your question. So if you don't have a question, put the microphone to your face, put it to us, mm. and you watch what happens. And so I went first and, you know, they do this and we're playing Perth and they put the microphone to me and I'm like, yeah, absolutely good question. Look, you know, what, what we're looking forward to when we play Perth is, you know, Sean Reddy's attacks, we've got to defend that as a group, you know, and you rattle on about that. Yeah, yeah. And they just do it again and then we raise something else. So we talked to the group, I talked to the team and I said, look, this week we've got no questions coming. You talk about whatever you want. Yeah. Just keep it informative. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of a... Wow. That's, yeah, everyone was like, right, we can speak confidently and, you know, mm. publicly and, and, and quite easily. And mm. so, yeah, so I think networking and then um, public speaking were, were tools that a lot of people don't work out. And then when I was in the business world, I would find out that if I went to a meeting, mm. I wasn't nervous about producing any content because I knew that if I knew my stuff and I had actually done my work, mm. I could speak confidently about it and present it to you present, you're presenting to a board of 10 people. Mm. That's nothing if you're playing in front of, you know, geez, mm. I'd much rather do that than play in front of 13,000 at Perth because at least yeah. these board members probably don't hate you and want to stab you. <laughs> fans, I know what they want to do to you. So, yeah, yeah. like, it's not, it's, it is, it, it kind of made me realise that, yeah, all those years where I just was doing my job, you actually learn a lot of um, tools for outside of basketball that and, you know, understand what makes people tick and mm. um, how to influence people or how to, 
um, you know, how, how to present to people, how to how teams network and how teams work. And so, if you are in a you know, in a corporate office, you understand how you know how to be a team player and how things work because you've done it under usually a higher pressure situation than you know the water cooler. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Some great insights there. Thanks for sharing that. Well, just as we finish up, some quick fire questions uh, just around your career and I guess um, players you played with, etc. But what's your greatest achievement? in uh, your career so far? In my basketball career would yeah. probably be winning most improved player for the NBL after getting fired from a team. Mm. Yeah, I was meant to ask you about that. It's a great achievement, obviously. Uh, best player you played against? I reckon Chris Williams from the Sydney Kings days. He was oh, wow. pretty tough. Mm. Couldn't shoot, so you back up, back up, back up. Next thing you know, you're in the paint and he shoots a little bunny over you. <laughs> He's Very tough. good. Um, yeah, great player in his time and God rest his soul. But um, I guess best player you've played with? Many, many. Um, I'm thankful for my time in, you know, Wollongong to be able to play with, you know, Matt Campbell and Glenn Savile to see to see what they do and the work they put in to make sure they got everything out of their bodies. Um, Carlos Powell in New Zealand, he was incredible. He was a tough, tough player to play and it was tough to play against and for other people and tough to play with. He was a very, very difficult teammate. Um, great talent. But you kind of, yeah, very difficult to play with as well. Mm. Last from the past there, Carlos Powell. Uh, last two, a toughest, uh, I get toughest opponent you played against or a person you hated matching up against in your career? Um... There's probably four of them, actually. Um, Sean yeah. Ridge and his three referee mates. They were, uh, <laughs> you would, you'd play against him. He was allowed to travel. He was allowed to push off. He was Is allowed right? to foul you. He was allowed to run into you when it was your foul. You were allowed to run into him, but it was your oh, foul. And I remember I spoke to one of the coach, one of the referees before the game. Mm. And I said, you know, Sean Reddy travels every time he catches the ball. And he said, yes, but he's so good at it. <laughs> and I said, so what, what is your aim? Just You're just going to wait for him to retire and then you don't have to worry about it. He goes, yes. And I was like, "Wow, I don't know how I can, what I can do with <laughs> this. Right that. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Wouldn't have thought that one. All right. And uh, finally, best memory doesn't need to necessarily be the best achievement or it could be something off the court. What's your best memory in your time playing pro ball? Uh, taking Delhi to go see the Christ Redeemer in Brazil on an Australia tour with yeah. the coaching staff when all the other players basically just sat in the room. But we, um, Delhi was a young fella and I said, come on, let's go. We're, we're here. Let's yeah. experience it. Game's not till later. And um, yeah, just just incredible. The fact that we were, you know, have the opportunity is... Yeah. You know, had plenty of options in Australia, but the fact that, you know, we were flying to another country and got to see things people dream of seeing mm. just before we actually do our job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Take the opportunity. Why not? Yeah. That's cool. Epic stuff. Well, thanks, mate. It's been great hearing your story and share some of, um, yeah, I guess those memories, but also um, those life lessons that you've learned from playing as well. So appreciate your time, Oscar, and um, hopefully see the game soon, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.